Good, uh, good evening. My name is Philip Munoz. I'm the director of the Tocqueville program and constitutional studies program. It's my pleasure uh, to welcome you uh, this evening. I have to say, when, the, when it was so nice out this afternoon, I was kind of afraid no one would show up. What, uh, what a wonderful turnout. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, the Tocqueville program uh, was founded just about 10 years ago to foster inquiry into religion and, and public life. And, and really, is there any better event uh, than tonight uh, to talk about Catholicism, religion, and American public life? And I'm absolutely thrilled with the, the faculty panel we've uh, put together. Uh, I'm going to uh, introduce uh, one of our Tocqueville fellows to introduce our panelists in just a moment. Just let me start with a few thank yous and uh, announcements. First, the announcements. Our final event of the semester will be uh, a week from today, uh, next Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. Very pleased to announce that Nadine Strassen, uh, former president of the ACLU, uh, will be speaking on uh, hate speech and free speech. So that's next Tuesday, uh, 7 o'clock. Um, not in the main uh, foyer here, but I, I think we're in 10, 10.50 or 10, we're in 10.30, that room right there. So join us uh, a, week, a week from tonight. Uh, a, a few people to thank and a few people to recognize. Uh, first of all, um, uh, the Notre Dame uh, Alumni Association of uh, St. Joseph County, uh, thanks for co-sponsoring with us. Um, uh, to your leadership, very much appreciated, and thank you for coming. Um, to my assistant, Jen Smith, who I'm sure is busy doing something right now. Jen, where'd you go? She's busy. Well, Jen's around here somewhere, busy, of course. Uh, re she really makes everything happy. She's way in the back. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Jen. Uh, actually, will you join me in thanking her? Anyone who has run anything knows that the, the person who's up here never runs it, and that's definitely true of my program. Um, a, a few other people to recognize. I know Dean Kremers, Dean Martin, as I'm going to call her. <laughs> Dean Martin Kremers just announced our new dean of the business school. Thank you for joining us this evening. What, what's in that? Forex, yeah. <laughs> Queensland's popular beer. <laughs> um, for your students here, we're about to send out, I think we just actually released our call for fellows. We have, um, used to be uh, two, then it was 12, now it's about 20 Tocqueville fellows. Um, the, the fellows uh, uh, help us plan our events, help us host our events. Tonight they had, had dinner with uh, Father Miss Campbell before tonight's event. Um, if, you're, if you're an undergraduate student and interested in uh, joining the program, we have a call for applications out. It's competitive, um, but if you're here tonight, you're exactly the type of student we would hope join us. So look at uh, our website, uh, either constudies.nd.edu or tocqueville.nd.edu. Final thing our uh, Tocqueville fellows do is they introduce our uh, speakers. So uh, Holly Badisher, uh, I'm close. <laughs> Holly, Holly babysits my kids. She's Miss Holly. <laughs> She's going to introduce our speaker. Let me just uh, explain the order of our, our event. Uh, Father Miss Campbell will uh, uh, introduce the book, and then uh, Professor uh, uh, Deneen, and then Professor McWord, and then Professor Cummings will uh, speak. And then um, uh, we'll have uh, Father Miss Campbell uh, give a brief response, and then we'll open it up to Q&A. But to properly introduce our, our uh, guest this evening, uh, Miss Holly. So, so. 
Good evening. It is my pleasure to introduce tonight's panelists. Father Bill Miss Campbell, a priest in the Congregation of the Holy Cross, has been part of the permanent faculty of the History Department at Notre Dame since 1988. He has chaired the History Department from 1993 to 1998 and has also served as the rector and superior of Moreau Seminary. Father Miss Campbell's research interests include American foreign policy since World War II and the role of Catholics in 20th century U.S. foreign relations and public life. His most recent book, American Priest, The Ambitious Life and Conflicted Legacy of Notre Dame's Father Ted Hesburgh, is the topic of this evening's conversation. Patrick Deneen is a professor of political science and holds the David A. Potenziani Memorial College Chair here at Notre Dame. His teaching and research interests center on the history of political thought, American political thought, religion and politics, and literature and politics. Professor Deneen's recent books include Conserving America, Thoughts on Present Discontents, and most recently, Why Liberalism Failed. Jennifer McAward is an associate professor of law at the Notre Dame Law School and is the director of the Clow Center for Civil and Human Rights. Her teaching and research interests include civil rights, constitutional law, and habeas corpus, in addition to the relationship between Congress and the federal courts with respect to individual rights. Currently, she is working on projects exploring the power of Congress to enforce the 13th Amendment. Kathleen Cummings is an associate professor of American Studies and History and is the director of the Kushwas Center for the Study of American Catholicism here at the University of Notre Dame. Professor Cummings' research focuses on the history of Catholicism in the United States, the study of American women, and the relationship between religion and American society. Her most recent book, A Saint of Our Own, How the Quest for a Holy Hero Helped Catholics Become American, was recently published. Please join me in welcoming our panelists. Well, thanks uh, very much to the Tocqueville program uh, for organizing this, and a special thanks to Philip Munoz, who's done such a terrific job building up this program and organizing some terrific events, and I also just want to add my own thanks to Jen Smith, who's uh, so gracious and generous, and uh, to the student fellows. Let me also thank my three notable faculty colleagues for agreeing to reflect on and to engage my book. That's the best an author can ask for. Uh, no matter what they say, it's really the best an author can ask for. But uh, I want to give a special thanks to Professor Kathleen Cummings, who had the launch this very afternoon of her own book, A Saint of Our Own. Uh, you see there that wonderful Elizabeth Ann Seton. How the quest for a holy hero helped Catholics become American. It's available for sale and uh, Actually, you should whip over to the bookstore and bring some back. It would be a terrific tag team purchase <laughs> with American priest, American saints, American priest. 
Of course, I want to thank all of you for uh, coming. I'm very grateful to you for your interest in this book. Now, I suspect that, in fact, there may be some of you in the audience who might hope or expect that when Kathy Cummings revises her book in the future, that she will have to add on a chapter including attention to the canonization process for Theodore Martin Hesburgh, CSC. In fact, I think my dear friend, Marianne Rogers, uh, the book is uh, dedicated to Dan and Marianne Rogers, my dear friends. Uh, I think uh, Marianne is rather in that category of expecting that canonization process to begin pretty soon. And there would indeed be much material to work with to mount a case. But I want to suggest to you that before we rush straight to the hagiography stage in our writing about Father Hesburgh, that we examine his life with some care. And that is what I have tried to do in the book, American Priests. And that is what I believe he deserves, a serious investigation. And that, of course, is what is done at serious universities. To examine a human life in the full with strengths and limitations. And I know this may be news to some of you, each of us has strengths and limitations. If you want an exercise in hagiography, my book is not the place to which to go. There are other possibilities. Uh, I don't say that the uh, upcoming film, soon for release, is hagiography, but it leans a little in that direction. It's so beautifully done, you're captured by the film, uh, but uh, that is not the kind of work I have undertaken. If you are prepared to wrestle with a complex life, then I ask you to look at my book. Those who think of Notre Dame as a mere sort of brand to be promoted and protected might not be enthusiastic about this, but those who understand what a real Catholic university is will welcome it. They understand we're engaged in the pursuit of truth, however limited may be our efforts to reach that vaunted goal. Just a few further words. Following his ordination in June of 1943, Father Hesburgh recalls stopping by the east door of Sacred Heart, it was then church, now Basilica, and he read the dedication above it, God, Country, Notre Dame. He recalled that right there, he committed his life to serving what he called that trinity. He undoubtedly kept his pledge. He poured out his energies, and few people you will ever come across 
had the energies of Ted Hesburgh. He poured out his energies to serve his nation and his church and to build up the university with which he was integrally linked for over seven decades. His remarkable life and notable contributions make him unquestionably the most significant figure in the modern history of Notre Dame. My book examines his life and contributions. When examining Father Hesburgh's portrait more closely, the glowing picture portrayed in some of the more general commentary about him becomes somewhat more blurred and the exact nature of his accomplishments more debatable. And I'm interested in debate. If we're to understand ourselves where we are at Notre Dame today, we have to understand the journey that he led Notre Dame through. We have to wrestle with it and talk about it. Now, while the aura that surrounds Father Hesburgh, especially here, makes it difficult to criticize any of his actions and inactions, the historian's task, and guess what, I'm a historian, is not to simply burnish up the image of a charismatic individual, and he was extraordinarily charismatic, but rather to examine a mortal life in its complexity. Theodore Hesburgh possessed a powerful belief that he was meant to lead Notre Dame to greatness as a Catholic university. He was blessed with endless self-confidence and a zealous energy, which he utilized effectively in performing his leadership role. He possessed some of the qualities, qualities of vision, integrity, courage, that are the usual requisites for greatness. And he had that special charisma that drew others to him to share his vision, his pragmatism, his ability to seize opportunities, equipped him well to lead his university in a time of change and explosive growth. He was a man of action, willing to make decisions. Such personal attributes allowed him to accomplish much. He also possessed a strong compulsion to break free of the restraints of those whom he judged might thwart his ambitions. His desire for greater independence from his religious order and from the institutional church certainly shaped how he led the university. Ironically, I think, he developed a virtual dependence on the regard and esteem of the liberal establishment in America of which he became a part. This partially concealed but very real craving 
imposed fetters, constraints of a different sort on him. And he personified the push for assimilation and acceptance in America, just as notably as did his near contemporary, JFK. They were born four days apart. His membership in the upper echelons of the establishment came to mean a great deal to him. That desire to be part of elite circles of power and influence colored how he led Notre Dame, as well as what causes he pursued. He especially sought the regard of the higher education elite for his university and for his leadership of it. But this recognition and regard came with a cost, as will be evident to any of you who are prepared to follow the story that I tell. I pose a question in the conclusion. It's a tough question. I don't answer it fully. But I ask, might it be said of Father Ted that he did too much kneeling before the world? I'll be very glad to hear the comments of my colleagues and then to engage all of you in some discussion. Thank you. Before, um, before I thank uh, Father Bill for this book, uh, I'd actually, uh, I actually, I led a program uh, when I taught at Georgetown, and I know the extraordinary effort and sacrifice that goes into running a program like this program. And I also know that people who run these kinds of programs always take time out to thank the people who help run that program but never actually are thanked for that. So I'd like to actually take this opportunity to ask you to join me in thanking my colleague and friend, Professor Munoz. For the that doesn't count against my time. <laughs> I would also like to thank Father Ted for this book. It is, uh, I think, a book of considerable interest uh, for anyone who has any care and affection for Notre Dame, for its history, for its future. I also want to thank him for writing a barn burner of a book. It's a real page turner, uh, one of those books you just can't put down once you've started reading it. The one, the one thing that I advised Father Bill in writing it is that he should consider the title, Why Father Ted Failed, because this, this would have assured that it would have been a bestseller. And he simply could have made the argument he failed because he succeeded. I think it would have been a great <laughs> In some ways, that's a joke, and in some ways, that is, in some respects, something of the story that Father Bill tells. He tells the story of an extraordinary life, and a life during an extraordinary period of time, America during its years of ascendancy to a position of unparalleled global power. And his own role in, in, in both his, uh, um, the time he spent with people who, who partook of and advanced America's role in the world, as well as his own featured part in that, in that story. 
And we are on this campus surrounded by the constant evidence of this enormous success of the vision he had for this university. I mean, you can't walk around campus these days, whether it's a building that was built when he was president or a building like this one that was built after he was president. It's hard to imagine that this institution would be as wealthy and as significant and as highly ranked without the extraordinary efforts of uh, Father Hesburgh. And yet, as Father Bill just indicated and is indicated in his title, this legacy is conflicted. Contained in that very success, I think he suggests maybe, and I think he suggests quite strongly, have been the seeds of a certain undoing of the, the distinctiveness of a Catholic university that might stand not merely in the world, but in some ways apart from the world, uh, to correct the world when it needs correcting, rather than seeking in almost all times and places the world's approval. And he tells of some, some moments later in his life uh, when perhaps Father Ted was worried that his legacy might include questions of whether or not he had led Notre Dame to, on a path toward secularization, ultimately rejecting that view, but perhaps at least concerned and anxious about that story or that possibility. The tale and the story that Father Bill tells is one of, as he, as he suggested, one of confidence, confidence of his own Catholicism, which was strong and firm, confidence of the Catholicism of Catholics in his time and place, but that in some respects, perhaps that confidence also shrouded a kind of naivete, uh, one that was perhaps justified in coming from that very deeply Catholic world, but one which viewed necessary concessions to that world as less compromises than the kinds of concessions that were necessary to expand the influence of Catholicism in American society. In other words, that these concessions would not exact deep costs of the Catholicism of those institutions. Now a question presents itself when you write a history with the benefits of hindsight, which is of course the benefit of the historian. Should he have known better? Should he have foreseen that these concessions might indeed become deep costs? And I was, in fact, in Father Bill's remarks, I was fascinated to see some parallels between his description of both Father Ted and John F. Kennedy. Uh, that both of them seek a kind of approval from the broader society, a Protestant society that had barred respectability and the entrance to the highest strata of society uh, by the deep Protestant uh, beliefs of, of this country. Now what Father Bill uh, discloses is that Father Hesburgh had some amount of distaste toward John F. Kennedy. Uh, he was in many ways conscious of JFK's willingness to trim his own belief when it was necessary for political gain. And he observed this at first hand in a story that Father Bill tells of his almost furtive and uh, um, middle of the night acceptance of the Latari Medal in 1961 when he arrives on campus and spends as little time as possible and quickly leaves uh, the scene without wanting to be detected as too Catholic even after he had won the presidency. He describes Kennedy in the following terms uh, on page 210 of his book. Without obvious deliberate calculation, he, JFK, himself had uh, himself 
to become uh, the most, had become the most acceptable Catholic to non-Catholics while still retaining the confidence and high regard of his fellow Catholics. His political instincts were such that he knew the time was right for such acceptable Catholics to move more fully into the corridors of power in the national government and in America's institutions and organizations that had long been dominated by the Protestant establishment. And yet witnessing and even in some ways disapproving of JFK's willingness to trim his belief, it was more or less at the same time in a different part of the book. So you don't always see this as exactly as, as happening at the same time. In the first part of the book focused on Notre Dame, it's exactly during these years that as Father, Hes uh, sorry, as Father Bill describes, he, Father Hesburgh, altered course abruptly in the early 1960s from one of having defended the rationale and benefits of a distinctly Catholic education to one in which he increasingly sought to make Notre Dame acceptable in the eyes of the world, especially elite institutions. This was the same year, 1961, that he began a reform of the curriculum that stressed, among other things, departmental autonomy and sought to uh, conform uh, the, these departments toward, quote, secular norms of excellence that culminated a decade later, later in a curriculum that was increasingly marked by distribution requirements rather than a genuine core of shared texts uh, that could be discussed and understood widely. Stressing departmental autonomy, of course, had profound implications on hiring practices because departmental autonomy meant that there was a diminution of the role of the, of the president, of the provost, uh, uh, meaning that departments would increasingly use those same secular, secular standards for hiring faculty and would revert to the norm that dominates secular institutions. And Father Bill also traces how during this time we, there was the beginning of a decline of the percentage of Catholic faculty who were teaching at Notre Dame. Also, just around this time, beginning in 1965 and 66, first at Notre Dame, and then including other Catholic universities in 1967, there was the effort to change the form of governance, both at Notre Dame and, and universally at Catholic institutions, to sever the relationship of these institutions with the church, in this case with the order that had founded Notre Dame. All this was done, Hesburg uh, said, and I quote from the book, will give us Notre Dame, the opportunity to build a truly great Catholic university with an impact on the modern scene. The desire was to open this institution out to the world so that we could have an impact on these, on these institutions. But the question, I think, lying quite much on the surface is whether or not the impact ran in an, uh, in an opposite direction. Father, Ms. Campbell, in fact, Riley notes that Notre Dame at that time seems in some ways to have sought to free itself particularly from ecclesial authority while submitting it meekly to worldly authority and suggesting that perhaps these were generals who were preparing for a war uh, that had passed and not the war that lie in the future. And so a question haunts this book and perhaps haunts all of us. Could a man so energetic and powerful and charismatic and obviously ambitious have taken a different path? What would that have looked like? What would it be to make a distinctly Catholic university in the modern world with the modern world's expectations of what a great university would look like? 
Was in fact Father Hesburgh simply driven, if he was driven by the desire to make this a great institution that would have an impact on the world, was driven by the demands of what the world expected was acceptable? That is to say, the question in some ways is, how important is the word American in the title of this book, the American priest? How important is that part of the Trinity, God, country, Notre Dame, the, the second part of that Trinity, in in some ways demanding a certain kind of fealty to the world? Perhaps there was no choice if the ambition was acceptability in America. Now we can wrestle with this question for a very long time, but let me conclude with a different question. Is it possible now, with all of the benefits and advantages, the, the great wealth and position and rank and status and position of Notre Dame today, is it possible for Notre Dame today to chart a new course precisely because Father Hesburgh was successful in the way he was successful? Because of its rank, because of its status, because of its wealth, because among other things it still has retained Catholicity in some distinct form. This is an institution that attracts faculty. We just mentioned uh, Dean Kramers, who left Yale University to come here. We have faculty who have left Harvard and Yale uh, and Stanford, and yes, even Georgetown, to be at an institution that was Catholic. With all of these signs of success of what Father Hesburgh achieved, would it be possible to chart a different course? Well, first we have to recognize how difficult that would be. All around us we say in see in institutions of higher learning the evisceration of the liberal arts, the moral failure of elite institutions that have become increasingly utilitarian, preparing students for work in high finance and, yes, consulting. Institutions that have become accrediting machines for the upper class and that are now really in, uh, increasingly simply institutions that perpetuate class and economic divides in America and in the world. Is it possible that Father Hesburgh may have positioned Notre Dame once having achieved this status in this increasingly, let's say, corrupt in, uh, uh, landscape of higher education, that he has positioned Notre Dame now and with, uh, with a possibility of breaking away and going on its own, going away on its own. What would that look like? What would that look like? We might, we might explore that possibility. It would involve faculty hiring. It would involve curriculum. It would, it would involve offering a very different model of what higher education would look like. And there would be obstacles and costs, including reputation and accreditation questions and possibly uh, threats of withholding of donations and so forth. But are we now in a position where we could strike out on that path because Father Hesper gave us this great legacy? And the question in some ways before us is, do we not have a choice? Because fundamentally, the word American is the most important part of this title. And we have no choice but to conform to this if we are going to have the respect of what passes for a respectable institution of higher education. Or is the word priest the most important word of this title? In other words, that there are come times and places where extraordinary people, of which Father Hesburgh was certainly one, who sometimes through courage, 
an extraordinary vision, set out a different path, one that transcends their time and their place with a vision of what they might be, one that I think Father Hesburgh had and he succeeded in, but which, if that's the case, opening up the possibility that that might still be the case and possibility that lies before us. That's my hope, at least, is the priest is the substantive and the American is secondary. Thank you, Father Bill, for writing this great book. Well, thank you, Professor Munoz and the Tocqueville Program for the invitation to participate this evening. It's a great honor to be here. Father Miss Campbell, congratulations on the publication of your book. I direct the Klaus Center for Civil and Human Rights, which Father Ted founded at the conclusion of his tenure on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. And because of this institutional connection in my own research at the law school, I've had occasion to study Father Ted's work on the Civil Rights Commission, and I use that research as the basis for my reflections this evening. While Father Miscampbell quite rightly states in the book that Father Ted was, quote, a tireless advocate for civil rights, I want to push back on the book's assessment of the impact of Father Ted's civil rights work, saying in the book that it was only modest. In particular, I would like to draw your attention to the importance of Father Ted's moral leadership, his policy leadership, and what I call the leadership of personal connection. To answer Father Miss Campbell's question, in the realm of civil rights, Father Ted did no kneeling before the world of the powerful, but only before the weak and disenfranchised as a servant leader should, and as we are all called to do. At the outset, it's important to understand the theological framework that formed the basis for Father Ted's work and views on civil rights. For him, the crucial starting point was the sacred nature and God-given dignity of the human person. From this reality, he argued, should flow the conviction, nihil humanum mihi alienum, translated, nothing human is alien to me. According to Father Ted, if each of us truly held this conviction, then every instance of human suffering and foreclosed opportunity should affect us deeply and compel us to work to remedy the great injustices and inequalities of our time. Father Ted held his convictions about human dignity even prior to his service on the U.S. Civil Rights Commission. But it was his 15-year tenure on the commission from 1957 to 72 that gave him the opportunity to learn directly about the suffering and foreclosed opportunities experienced by racial minorities in this country. He consistently gave voice to the moral outrage of racism during and after his time on the commission through public speeches and written comments. As the book points out, it is of course true that Father Ted's was not the only voice that criticized Jim Crow and racial discrimination from a moral standpoint. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. provided consistent moral witness, and other Catholics, clergy and lay, participated in the civil rights movement. But while we have a clear understanding today of Dr. King's righteousness, we must recall that during the 1950s and 60s, he was reviled in many sectors of society, viewed with disdain and outright suspicion. 
The FBI covertly sur surveilled him as a national security threat from 1955 until his assassination in 1968. In 1964, when Father Ted stood with Dr. King at Soldier Field, Dr. King was viewed unfavorably by 57% of the American public. By 1968, his disapproval rating had risen to 75%. To have, as unfortunate as it is, but to have a white Catholic priest appointed by the president and speaking on behalf of a federal commission, articulating a moral critique of racism, enabled that message to be heard even by those who discounted Reverend King. Indeed, as Andrew Young, a close confidant of Dr. King, once observed, quote, the key to the success of the civil rights movement was to keep it from being a radical leftist movement and to recognize that it was truly a movement coming out of the Judeo-Christian US constitutional tradition of justice. Well, Young said, nobody could represent all those forces like Father Ted could. Expressing a similar sentiment, President Jimmy Carter noted that because African-American activists during that era were often marginalized, they were in dire need of, quote, very distinguished white leaders who would join with them and add imprimaturs of approval for what they were doing. Father Ted, said President Carter, was one of those who came forward. In addition to providing an important moral voice and leadership against Jim Crow, Father Ted also proved himself to be an important policy leader. Father Ted took his seat on the Civil Rights Commission in 1957, three years after the ruling in Brown versus Board of Education. Despite Brown, the vast majority of primary and secondary schools throughout the South remained segregated, and Southern political leaders called for open resistance to integration. Mississippi chose to close its public schools rather than integrate them, while Louisiana amended its constitution to justify segregation as an exercise of its police powers. Georgia simply issued a resolution asserting that the 14th and 15th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution and their guarantees of equal protection of the laws and voting non-discrimination were, quote, null and void. Against this background, the Commission held extensive hearings on the degree of non-compliance with Brown and theorized that where moral suasion and judicial mandates had failed to promote integration, financial incentives might work. Indeed, Father Ted became the leading proponent of promoting integration through the threat of withholding federal funds. He, he initially proposed this idea in the commission's 1959 report in a joint statement joined by only two other commissioners. Two years later, the entirety of the commission agreed with Father Ted's approach. Most critically, Father Ted prevailed with Congress which incorporated his ideas into and based Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act on Father Ted's theory. Title VI permits the government to cut off federal financial assistance to any program or activity, including educational institutions, that discriminate on the basis of race. More than anything before it, Title VI had an immediate and beneficial effect on school desegregation in the South and it was Father Ted's brainchild. Operating on a national stage, Father Ted demonstrated a savvy ability 
to translate his moral vision into operable policies. Indeed, by the end of Father Ted's tenure on the commission, including nearly four years as chair, Congress had enacted roughly 70% of the commission's recommendations, incorporating them into critical pieces of civil rights legislation, including the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Fair Housing Act of 1968, and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Now, with respect to voting rights, Father Ted was both a policy leader and an advocate for individual citizens. When Father Ted began his tenure on the commission, intimidation and disenfranchisement characterized the state of the African-American vote across the South. State and local officials used literacy tests, poll taxes, and outright physical violence to suppress the black vote in what Father Ted quite aptly described as a reign of terror. The commission's work ultimately formed the core of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, especially with regard to the abolition of poll taxes and literacy tests. Father Ted, of course, participated in formulating these influential policy recommendations, but he also personally testified before Congress in support of the Voting Rights Act. But he also used the spotlight that was trained on him to intervene individually on behalf of frustrated African-American citizens. This is the leadership of personal connection to which I referred earlier. During one hearing, the commission heard testimony about a New Orleans scheme in which white voting registrars struck some 2,000 registered African-American voters from the polls. To re-register, these citizens were required to present two registered voters who would testify to their voting qualifications. Of course, there were no more registered African-American voters to serve as witnesses, and no registered white person would vouch for a black voter. The person testifying about this scheme was an African-American U.S. Army captain who had lost his right to vote. Unable to provide registered witnesses, this man went to the local registrar with photo ID, his federal income tax return, his professional credentials in dentistry, and his honorable discharge from the Army. And still, he was turned away. Upon hearing this story during a televised hearing, Father Ted said, quote, Captain, I believe you, and I am sure that everyone who is watching this on television believes you. Go back to that registration place tomorrow morning. If they don't register you, call me immediately and let me know, because I will then call the President of the United States, and I will tell him that one of his Army officers is being prevented from voting in Louisiana. I can promise you that the President will make things so hot for everyone that they will wish they had never heard of you. It appears that the local voting registrar was indeed watching TV that day. The next day, because of Father Ted, the Army captain was registered to vote immediately. Father Ted made many such personal connections through his work on the Civil Rights Commission and beyond, and time doesn't permit more anecdotes that could surely follow. So I will just sum up by saying it is certainly true that the civil rights movement had many elements and many essential leaders. It is also true that Father Ted was one of them, providing moral and policy leadership on a broad scale as well as a deft personal touch. Further, it is clear that the work of racial justice is not yet done. And so I'll conclude my comments by offering Father Ted's own words, which certainly ring true today. 
One cannot hear about racial division and conclude that all is right in our land. The problems are more complicated today. The issues are not as clear. The solutions are not as readily apparent. But the crisis facing our country today is every bit as serious, if not more so. There are many more obstacles to be overcome before the dream of equality on which this country was founded is finally redeemed. All of us as Americans should be concerned and should look for answers that will help create a society where men and women can move about freely and people are not feared simply because they are strangers and where every human being is assumed to be a person of dignity and value and worth and respected as such. Thank you. I'll just repeat the thanks to Professor Munoz for organizing this panel, and it's wonderful to be on the panel with you, Professor Janine and Professor McAward. And congratulations, Father Ms. Campbell. Uh, as you heard, uh, I just completed a book, and I think we can say that completing any book is a miracle, and uh, really with the amount of work that goes into it, and Father Bill and I have been talking about our books. We had a book exchange earlier this, this month, and um, George Weigel blurbed both of our books, I just like <laughs> to say. I'm tickled to see that we have written about some of the same characters. Um, Edward Heston, CSC, and Cardinal O'Hara are major figures in a story I tell about the cause for canonization of John Newman, Bishop of Philadelphia. In fact, O'Hara and Heston helped engineer a breakthrough in his cause. So, um, so I just really liked hearing more about that. I was less tickled about other aspects of Father Bill's book, so I want to open by saying, first of all, that I offer my criticism as a historian who has thought very carefully about what it means to interpret past lives and to situate them in a larger context. And I want to acknowledge that I learned a great deal about how to do both of those things from Father Bill. For those of you who may not know, Father Bill was my mentor when I was a doctoral student in, and he was chair of the history department at Notre Dame in the mid-1990s. A class with him provided the impetus for me to take my very first research trip to the Truman Presidential Library in Independence, Missouri. Do you remember the paper I wrote for that, Father Bill? It's a little hazy. <laughs> this was back in the days when I thought I was going to write diplomatic history instead of religious history. I served as Father Bill's TA, and I've tried to emulate his just really genius in the classroom. I do think the Australian accent gives him a, an unfair advantage in terms of, but, um, and, and I also want to say, and this, I may have never said this to him before, but Father Bill played a major role in, in helping me think and continue to think about what it means to be a woman in the academy improbably and admittedly indirectly in that he gave me a copy of Jill Kerr Conway's True North, um, a, a, a book I turn to again and again. She's a native of Australia, best known for her memoir, The Road from Coraine, but this is about her studies in history, um, PhD program in history at Harvard and eventually the presidency of Smith College. And I, I read it again and again, actually. I also learned a great deal about what it means to be a woman in the academy from the subject of this book. 
And I will end my reflections by saying just a few words about what Father Ted has meant to me and to many women of Notre Dame. But meanwhile, I want to preface my comments, and again, some criticism, by saying that I believe, and I think Father Bill would agree, that we write books to start conversations, not end them. And I think Father Bill is initiating several really important conversations at Notre Dame and beyond about the life and legacy of Theodore Martin Hesburgh. Now, it's funny in your opening comments, I teach a university seminar here at Notre Dame. This is for first-year students called Sanctity and Society. And the premise is that men and women propose for canonization during a given era often reveal as much about the priorities and interests of the particular societies from which they emerge than they do about the holiness of the prospective saints themselves. And so part of this seminar is students write a final paper in which they propose an American saint for the current moment. And there are about 80 open causes of Americans at some stage or another. And so students are encouraged to choose from among them, like Dorothy Day or Augustine Tolton or many, many. But I always make clear that I'm willing to think outside the box if they can justify it but I have to approve it. So in 2012, a student came to me to tell me that he had chosen his prospective saint, Father Ted Hesburgh. I said, well, there's one problem. He's alive. <laughs> but this student was persistent, and those of you know how students can be, and he absolutely wanted to interview Father Ted for this paper. So I relented, and uh, we cooked up this absolutely fake category in the canonization process called the anticipatory phase. And <laughs> the student did go and interview Father Ted and uh, actually produced a decent enough paper in the end. I looked it up. He had got a B plus. I'm not bad. Um, but Throughout the semester, I was plagued by a nagging sense of guilt that I was wittingly abetting a phenomenon of which I heartily disapproved, namely, the premature elevation to the honors of the altar of a complex and flawed man. So Father Bill and I are completely on the same page of this in a sort. I, I witnessed this premature canonization of Father Ted throughout his extended twilight years, and, and I think it is. There are elements of it in the recent documentary, which I absolutely thought was wonderful. But I, too, like Father Bill, am a historian, and I recognize that we must move beyond hagiography to historical analysis and situate the man with his virtues and his vices in the context of church and nation. And that is what Father Bill claims to do in this book. And I would just like to share how I would have gone about it differently and ask um, him to reflect in particular on some sources in the book. Were I to write a book such as this, I think archives are absolutely crucial. And certainly they're available to Father Bill as, um, as particularly a member of the community. But in fact, Father Ted's papers are increasingly available to larger audiences. This book is not based on archives. Instead, it's based, as Father Bill explains, on conversations that took place at Land Lakes in Wisconsin in the summer of 1998 over the course of six days and Father Bill explains the process in the book, um, talks about the idyllic setting, talks about plenty of fishing that was done, and how they got together in the evenings. And you're drinking. 
<laughs> I'm going to mention that. Now, I allow that this endeavor meets completely the standard of journalistic ethics. Father Ted knew he was on the record, and I have no doubt that Father Bill kept meticulous transcripts of their conversations. I'm less certain it aspires to ideals of Christian charity, but more to the point, I am confident it doesn't hold up very well to the kind of historical scrutiny necessary to give a fair and balanced account of Father Ted's life. Now, I'm not primarily concerned with issues of memory. Father Ted was 81, uh, but for those of you that knew him, his memory was remarkable. I am a little concerned about the amount of alcohol that Father Bill admits flowed freely throughout their evening conversations. Uh, not because I, I, I think it's pretty clear Father Ted could hold his liquor, um, but we all know that alcohol loosens tongues. Re really? Yeah, my students are all, are all laughing. Um, I guess what concerns me the most is that anyone who has ever worked with or loved an elderly person knows how the filters just disappear the older one gets. This was a man who had scores to settle, who, and, and he was 10 years out of office at this time. Father Bill asserts that this was the best time to interview him, that this was the perfect time. And I profoundly disagree with that claim. I think instead it created the conditions under which one of Father Ted's most obvious flaws, a tendency to self-aggrandizement, could be used against him. And so my question is, why not archives? Why, why this? I think the absence of archival research makes this book far less richly textured than it could be. As too does what I see as a persistent overlooking of context, particularly when it comes, I'm focusing more on the first half of the book, which involves his, pre uh, his presidency here at Notre Dame. Throughout the book, Father Bill um, repeats what, uh, what other people have criticized about Father Ted. Um, he tended to give himself too much credit. He deserved a lot of credit. I, I, I appreciate that, but he tended to give himself a lot of credit. And I think perversely, Father Bill then prevents, presents in many ways this book, the broader history of Catholic education, higher education in America in the post-war period as a one-man show starring Father Ted Hesburgh. And not giving enough attention to the fact that the decisions Father Ted made at Notre Dame and to the conversations he led at Land O'Lakes in 1967 were part of a larger attempt to rise to a very real challenge of reshaping Catholic colleges and universities in response to the modern world. At the back end of that challenge was what Monsignor John Tracy Ellis, a historian at Catholic University, called in a very influential essay he published in 1955, uh, U.S. Catholics' betrayal of the rich intellectual heritage of Catholicism. Now, in much of Father Bill's narrative, the benchmarks that Father Ted was aspiring to were the secular universities. And, and I think that's certainly true of the later period, and it's certainly true today in our contemporary conversation at Notre Dame. And I really appreciate, Patrick, your call to think differently about that. But when you read Ellis and, and what Hesburgh set out to do, the benchmarks were the great Catholic universities of Europe. Ellis pointed out that American Catholics, particularly in the post-war period, were too enamored of making money to embrace the life of the mind. And that resulted in, higher, in institutions of higher education that prepared them to become accountants or lawyers or doctors, but not thinkers. 
The decline in Catholic faculty that uh, Father Bill talked about occurred in large part because Catholics didn't get PhDs in the same percentage of, of their representation in the population. I think that's changing. But that's, a, that's a, something that, that wasn't Father Ted's fault alone. Father Bill refers throughout the book to this supposed mediocrity of Catholic higher education at Notre Dame. And evidence suggests that there was, wasn't really much supposed about it. And by mediocre, I don't mean that there weren't gifted and learned faculty. Certainly there were um, serving on the faculty. But by every other measure in terms of the endowment, the number of PhDs, the infrastructure, all the things we all benefit so much from today, um, it was a real challenge. When, when Father Bill talks about the collapse of the Thomas synthesis in terms of the curriculum at Notre Dame, which was a real collapse, again, this was not something engineered by Father Ted alone, but was happening throughout Catholic America. And I think Father Bill is correct that Father Ted never articulated a compelling replacement for that curriculum. But surely that was not a failure of Father Ted alone. In Father Bill's telling, a great mistake was the turning over of Notre Dame to a lay board of trustees. And, and here, I, I think it raises important conversations, but I think in a sense, Father Bill's claim is divorced from some important larger realities. For example, he notes the Holy Cross headcount on the faculty in 1969. 15 full professors who are Holy Cross priests, 20 associate professors, 22 assistant professors. Those numbers plummeted, not because, as Ms. Campbell implies, that Hesburgh sidelined them to pastoral rows on campus, but because the numbers overall dropped precipitously. There were just not enough Holy Cross priests to serve on the faculty of Notre Dame, or in fact, uh, members of men's and women's religious communities, to serve on the faculty anywhere. And this, this recurs, Father Ted talks about Miss Jacqueline Grennan, a particular woman who, quote, forced her way into Father Ted's thinking. Jacqueline Grennan was the sister of Loretto who oversaw the transfer uh, to a lay institution of Webster College. And I, I, I found it utterly dismissive of Grennan and the one sentence about her and really the very real challenges that involved pain, I think, not just for Father Ted, but to many religious leaders. And it's unclear what the alternative was, that there wasn't a faculty, uh, there weren't enough Holy Cross priests, or you can substitute any religious order for this, that could have maintained this core of the faculty. I'm going to use Grennan to uh, transition to my final point, which, as I suggested, is going to involve the discussion of women. Father Bill notes correctly that Father Ted was not a pioneer in women's higher education. And in fact, some of the women from the early classes are kind of upset with the Hesburg documentary because it doesn't make so much of women. And the producer said, look, Father Ted was not a pioneer in that. Notre Dame, um, women were admitted to Notre Dame because it helped Notre Dame more than it helped women, basically. But there's more to the story. I got to know Father Ted not when I was a doctoral student here, but over my years at the Kushwa Center, over the course of which I have been introduced to many women from those early classes who reached out to me um, and, and were very interested in my work. There were many sentences in this book that caused me some pain, but the one that I objected to the most was Father Bill's observation that Father Ted played his role as an occasional counselor for the young female students who worked up the nerve to visit him in his office. 
He points out that only a third of the student body when he left office uh, was made up of women. That was increased by Monk Malloy. But I can tell you that those words do not do justice to what Father Ted did and meant to the women who were part of those early classes and subsequent classes at Notre Dame. I get asked a lot in my public commentary whether uh, about myriad issues in the church, about whether clerical celibacy is to blame for the myriad problems in the church, especially those which involve women. And I always have Father Ted in the back of my mind when I respond that a man doesn't have to have been sexually intimate with a woman to understand women and the concerns they have, concerns about their bodies certainly, but also concerns about their minds. And we see glimpses of that Father Ted in this book. Um, when uh, Father Bill talks about Father Ted's years as a chaplain in Vetville, all the hours he spent listening to couples, listening to women, to complex issues. Pat and Patty Crowley, founders of the Christian Family Movement, make a brief appearance in here. But to me, this, all of this helped Father Ted develop into the man I knew him to be. A man who repeatedly and in many ways assured women that they were intelligent and they made Notre Dame not just a kinder place but a better university and that they belonged here. In 2012, I was organizing a panel to celebrate the anniversary, the 40th anniversary, the co-education of the University of Notre Dame. And many women from some of the early classes were back here and we were up in Father Ted's office having the obligatory photo shoot. When it was my turn for a picture with Father Ted, he was sitting at his desk, um, I leaned over to him and instinctively crouched down to be closer to him. He was sitting. He said, oh no. Stand tall. You're a Notre Dame woman, and Notre Dame women always stand tall. That is the Father Ted that I know, and I believe this portrait does not do justice to the complexity of that man with all his flaws, just the rest of us. I'll end there, but I'll reiterate that we write books not to end conversations, but to start them. And I have no doubt that this very provocative book is going to open a great many important ones. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a wonderful uh, conversation. Um, uh, Father Bill, you want a few minutes to respond? Yeah, you want. Um, we'll try to go short so we get as many questions as possible. So I want to thank uh, the three uh, panelists. Uh, it was terrific. Uh, just some uh, quick comments uh, on Patrick Deneen's uh, remarks. Uh, by and large, I find myself in agreement. Uh, Patrick has uh, been a person who has stimulated uh, a lot of my own thinking. I think there's some of his influence in the book in certain ways. And uh, I just want to reiterate his point. What is going to be the most important, the American or the priest part? I'll leave it at that uh, because uh, I'll uh, go on to make some comments on uh, both uh, Professor McAward and uh, Professor Cummings' remarks. So 
I have nothing with which I disagree in Professor McAward's tribute to Father Hesburgh's work on the Civil Rights Commission. That is what one gets if you focus only on Father Ted. But what I tried to do in the book was to locate him, if you will, in context. And uh, I think because of uh, the endless Notre Dame promotion of the arm in arm, Father Hesburgh and MLK, there's a sort of subliminal message that's constantly put out there that Father Ted was marching with MLK all the time, and of course that was not correct. MLK visited this campus in 1963, and Father Ted was not around to greet him. That would have been a photo, I think, worth gathering, because as Professor McAward makes out uh, and explains, King was not always popular. Uh, certainly, anyone who studies the work of the Civil Rights Commission, and I relied on the uh, study of it by Foster Ray Dulles, sees that the chair of the Civil Rights Commission, who was actually the president of Michigan State, John Hanna, John Hanna was the key figure that kept the commission together. Rarely in any of the Notre Dame blurbs does poor John Hanna even receive a mention for his work. His name deserves to be in there as well. Similarly, uh, it's important for us to appreciate it takes nothing away from Father Hesburgh's important leadership on civil rights to appreciate that you can read Taylor Branch's three-volume history on America in the King years, I'd say close to 2,000 pages, and Father Ted's name comes up only briefly. I say he is a major second-level figure in civil rights, where to applaud him for his efforts he is on the right side of history. But I would go a little further and say this. If Father Ted had that deep concern for the dignity of every human person that's so evident in his civil rights work, there are other elements in what he did and failed to do that raise a few more questions. And here I touch on a difficult subject, a sensitive subject, and that is the whole question of his involvement with the Rockefeller Foundation, their major population control efforts in the 1960s, and then, of course, their support for abortion rights, etc. Father Ted always separated himself from it, said, I'm not going to support any of it, but he's chairing the Rockefeller Foundation board. It seems a little questionable to be the chair of a board that's the major funder of a lot of population control efforts in the world. I see that Father Ted missed a chance for a sort of greatness as a 
consistent champion for life, that his efforts on civil rights didn't bleed naturally into a great defense of human life. But I think it was in part because he was kneeling towards the world that he didn't want to separate himself off from all those liberal establishment types whom he had come to know. Let me turn to uh, Professor Cummings' very helpful comments. Look, I plead guilty. I determined that since I had reached my mid-60s, I was not going to spend five years powering through the archives of Father Ted's papers. I'm leaving that to youthful scholars like <laughs> Professor Cummings, and there's lots of wonderful archival research there in her book. Plus, I made a judgment, which it can be tested in the future, that I could get more to a real capturing of Father Hesburgh through not just the interviews, but the substantial primary and secondary reading that I would do about him. And uh, I read considerable amounts of Hesburgh's prose, let me assure you of that. Uh, and uh, I want to defend the interviews. I debated whether to put into my preface that Father Ted and I drank during the interviews. Hey, but I'm an honest man. <laughs> I want to say that for the first three hours of our sessions, I did not drink. He did. But after three hours of listening to him, I needed a drink. <laughs> the transcripts get a bit hazy after that point. But let me assure you of this. There's no more self-aggrandizement in the interviews I conducted with Father Ted than in, say, his memoir, God Country, Notre Dame. There's no change in personality. I was not taking advantage of an old man. Far from it. Father Ted had developed a wonderful persona. He was always Father Ted. But beside that beautiful lake, late at night, sometimes he dropped his guard, not, not about self-aggrandizing matters, but about his relationships with CSC priests, where we talked together as brothers. I think I had access to a real person as opposed to the Father Ted, who's a sort of almost iconic status. I, I tried to provide more context in my book. This is something that Kathy has experienced herself. You know, you write a book, you have these awful people called editors, and they, they start telling you what you can do and how long a book you have to write. And uh, I wrote a book that was longer than this book. I included a lot of context, not so much about the Catholic story, I included a lot more American context. 
And uh, when the word came back, much to my dismay, you can imagine how well I handled it, uh, that I would have to cut out some of my prose. I, I had a person advise me on this, and he said, people can get the context elsewhere. You've got to tell the Hesburgh story, and that's what I've tried to do. In telling the Hesburgh story about Catholic higher education, I at least tried to genuflect to the context. I'm telling his story of how he navigated Notre Dame through larger contexts. But I say that John Tracy Ellis, I wish that damn article had never been written by John Tracy Ellis, because it upset and caused a crisis of confidence among Catholic educational leaders that was perhaps somewhat undeserved. Father Hesburg really was influential in Catholic higher education. It was not a one-man show, but he certainly is a key figure. Notre Dame in the 1950s and in the 1960s had nothing of the splendor of today, but when we speak about the mediocrity of the Notre Dame of those years, I ask you to contemplate just what it might be that, uh, by the way, theology was a particularly mediocre uh, department because theology was not taught in a serious way in the universities in those days. Theology at Notre Dame is, is really created in the 1960s. It was a catechetical department, but philosophy was a serious department. And people took a coherent sequence of philosophy courses. I dare say there might be some of the older members, let's say senior members, of this audience tonight who benefited greatly from those courses and I think the Notre Dame of today, with all of our wealth and splendor, shortchanges a lot of our students, except the students in the Tocqueville program, who know which courses to take, et cetera, et cetera. Too many students can graduate from Notre Dame without a rich Catholic formation, which takes me somewhat back to Patrick's point. This is partly the reason I wrote the book, I was trying to understand for myself when I first brought the idea to Father Ted about writing about him, I was trying to understand how have we come to a place, this was the 1990s, when it was a contested matter to try and hire a Catholic faculty member. Walt Nagorski, my dear friend, can remember those days and uh, I began the book out of, I quite admit it, a present-minded concern to try and understand how we had come to be where we are. I hope that those of you who will read the book will have a better understanding of Notre Dame's past, of the great man who led it, but also a recognition that we here at Notre Dame have some work to do in the present. Thank you so much.
The hour is late, but we do have time for uh, questions. We have a tradition here at the program. We always invite our undergraduate students to ask the first questions. Uh, undergraduate uh, with, with a question? Should have had one planted. Uh... <laughs> yes, here we are. Stand up, George. Tell us who you are. Yeah, uh, I'm George Alsankari. Uh, I'm a fellow and I study computer engineering. Um, kind of a trite question, but if there's any personal quality Father Hesburgh had you wish other people had, what would it be? I'll come to here. I'll come to here. I listed some of those qualities of his in my little introductory talk. And uh, I think the quality that I admire most about him is a certain courage. He had a vision, and he was willing to, uh, to move ahead and make decisions. And uh, that uh, willingness, I think, is uh, a quality so much of sort of contemporary academe you know, people are fearful of making mistakes or saying the wrong thing or there's going to be sort of blowback on them, etc. I don't say that that applies to any of my panelists here or courageous folk. But you can see it around. You can see it around in academe. And uh, Hesburgh's uh, willingness, uh, if you don't mind my expanding on the answer, I think sometimes his self-confidence was a bit of a detriment. Uh, he was so sure he was right most of the time. There's a classic discussion in this book of Father Ted correcting Cardinal Newman on what a Catholic university is. And uh, I read that and I think to myself, boy, that uh, takes a certain chutzpah. But uh, he had it. Okay. And let's open it up to anyone. Questions? And please wait for uh, the microphone. We're live streaming the event, so Christian over here. Just wait, to, wait for the microphone, please, and tell, please tell us who you are. Thank you. Uh, my question is, uh, I'm from Europe. I experienced the Second Vatican Council from close. Yeah. And I would like to know, what was the influence of Father Hesburg on the Second Vatican Council, the role of lay people, for instance? And the other way around also, what was the influence um, of the uh, Second Vatican Council for the University of Notre Dame at that time? Yeah, thanks, Professor. Kathy will probably want to weigh in on this as well. But I say the influence was much more the Council on Notre Dame than Father Ted on the council. Uh, he, he's sharing the zeitgeist, he's sharing the thinking of the period. He's very enthusiastic for the Second Vatican Council, particularly you know, after that first period when they break loose of Octaviani's sort of set guidelines and they open it up. So he's, he's with them in spirit, but he has no direct role. He's not called upon as a paritas or anything of that sort. Uh, occasionally he visits Rome. He likes to, you know, get involved. And he, he's great friends with Paul VI. He said, you know, in previous councils, university chancellors and presidents had been allowed to go to the floor. Paul VI permitted that. But that's not a major thing. But flip to the other side. Of course, he sees 
all of his subsequent actions as growing out of the call of the council for an enhanced role for the laity in the church, he saw this as confirming what he had done in his own doctoral dissertation back in the 40s, etc. And uh, he sees in Gaudium et Spes confirmation of his desire that the university should be this base that goes out and tries to serve for justice and peace in the world. So the council has a major impact on him and back here, more so than him having an influence on the council. I don't know, Kathy, you want to say anything on that? I, I would agree with that, and I want to hear more from you. You do talk about, you reference Gaudium et Spes quite a bit in the book, and I, yeah. I think that's, my question was, what about Perfecte Caritatis, and how did he think about the restructuring of religious life, or the, the return to the roots, and uh, was that, and, and that relates to my question, I guess, about the decline uh, in vocations, uh, particularly Holy Cross faculty. Yeah. So, Perfecte Caritatis is the document on religious life. It's one of the weaker documents of the Council, but it calls for renewal and going back to the Gospels and the charism of the founder, for our founder, Basil Moreau. So, Father Ted always found a deep ambivalence about the founder of the Holy Cross order, Basil Moreau. Uh, Basil Moreau isn't on Kathy's list to be uh, considered as an American saint, but of course for the Holy Cross order, we wouldn't mind if anyone has a healing here tonight, if you could, <laughs> if you could attribute it to Basil Moreau, we'd be appreciative because we're seeking a second miracle for the poor chap. <laughs> Father Ted's loyalty was to Edward Soren. Soren, not Moreau. So he has an ambivalence to the founder of the order that he's part of. And of course, any of you who've read Marvin O'Connell's magisterial biography of Soren know that there's all this tension between Moreau, Father Moreau, and Father Soren. So Father Ted does, he, he handles the renewal in religious life that comes about fairly well, but he's just so devoted to his leadership of Notre Dame, he's not giving a lot of time and attention. Now, any of you who lived through that period know that this renewal comes pretty quickly. People who were wearing religious habits quickly doff them over a five-year period. Father Ted, he's, he's a pretty straight guy, and so, you know, <laughs> I mentioned a couple of episodes, I don't know if you recall them, but uh, he, he got a little perturbed with how loosey-goosey formation was becoming in the Holy Cross order. And, uh, you know, some seminarians were going out to movies with young women. This bugged the hell out of Father Ted. He's like, what the heck is going on? So in the midst of him being so enthusiastic about the council, he starts to worry about the health of the community, and then the hammer comes. Forty priests in Holy Cross who had doctorates left in the late 60s hmm. and in the 70s. This mass exodus that eats out some of the, the guts of the order hmm. occurs and he's trying to navigate his way and keep things together. 
but at that very same time, he's got all the troubles with student radicalism on campus, all the major changes, etc. So the order is never fully a priority. Perhaps he had that in mind as he wanted to separate off control, uh, but in my view, more important for him was he didn't believe he really should be reporting to a religious superior. He wanted a structure that was more like any other American university structure. So, sorry for that. I hope that answered some of your question also, Kathy's. Okay, let's try to get a couple more questions. Uh, so Maggie, Christian over here. Yeah, um, my name is Maggie. I'm also a Tocqueville Fellow studying theology and constitutional studies. Um, one thing I was struck with was by the photos of Father Ted and all the popes um, of his time, like Pius XII, Paul VI, John XXIII, JP II. Um, I guess I was wondering if there was a pope that he had a particularly close relationship with oh, and yes. how they might have affected his leadership and vice versa. Yes, thank you, Mady. So, uh, Father Ted, I included all the photos of the popes just in case people buy the book for photos. And uh, I wanted to make sure that they were all in there. Uh, but his relationship with Pius XII was minimal. Uh, he was appointed to the international, as uh, the Vatican delegate to the International Atomic Energy Agency under Pius XII, but through the influence of Cardinal Spellman. John XXIII, he loved but didn't have much of a relationship with. Of course, he's only Pope for five years. Paul VI was the Pope he had an enormously close relationship with. It's a personal relationship. It's not that he's telling Paul VI what should be done at Vatican II. No. Paul VI comes to Notre Dame for the 1960 commencement as the to preside at the baccalaureate mass. It's Father Ted's favorite commencement. Eisenhower was the commencement speaker. Father Ted hosts him for a couple of days. A bond is established between them. He says, whenever you come to Italy or come to Rome, etc., you know, Father Ted used to be able to go to the papal apartments without an appointment, just go in. They'd eat together. He used to bring him so-called space movies, these movies from NASA. Paul VI loved space and so on, and they'd be watching them. That's a sight to bring to your own mind, isn't it? Uh, Sadly, for both men, there's a rupture that occurs in 1968. It's not directly because of Humane Vitae, although I think Humane Vitae is in the background. And uh, that rupture is a deep rupture, and it's never really healed. Mm. And uh, Father Ted told me that, you know, following the death of Paul VI, he always tried to visit his grave when he was in Rome to repay that sort of instruction that he had been told, whenever you come to Rome, visit me. Yeah. JP2, Father Ted can't work the guy out. He's talking, JP2's talking about culture is more important than politics. JP2's holding a strong stand against communism. And Father Ted's into Ospolitik, he's into negotiations with the Soviets and so on. So he finds himself on multiple levels just not connecting. He admires JP2's strength, but there's no big connection there. 
So they're the four main ones that he has dealings with making. Thanks for the question. Okay, let's try to get one or two more. Uh, but so very brief answers. Oh, the sorry, more, briefer, sorry. The more questions. Hey, there were there were four popes. Let's see. Uh, Christian, we'll go Noel, and then there's a woman way in the back. Yeah, uh, right, right here first. Yeah. Thank you so much, everyone. Um, my question is, in Pope Benedict's recent statement on the causes of the sex abuse scandal, he points to this decline of Catholic moral theology in the 1960s. And I'm wondering if you would draw a connection between Father Ted's um, efforts with the uh, independence of the departments um, and work on land lakes in that same movement to uh, sort of loosen Catholic moral theology. Yes, thanks, Noel. That's a question that perhaps others can have a, a crack at as well. I, I would not want to draw any straight lines. Um, those of you who know something of the history of Notre Dame know that I touch on a very sensitive topic, the relationship between Father Ted and the first provost of Notre Dame, uh, James Burchill. Uh, so the questions about um, sexual exploitation of others by priests um, is, is sort of present in the book in a very limited way. Uh, as I say, Father Ted in some ways had a slightly conservative uh, approach. For example, he was the one who wanted to keep single-sex dorms and so on. He was trying to maintain uh, a sort of, um, you know, a, a, a clear moral code, a clear moral code at Notre Dame. But he was also caught up in the movement for birth control. He was a great friend of Pat and Patty Crowley who were on the birth control commission and signed off on the majority report. And uh, I, I think he was sometimes just perplexed by some of what the sexual revolution was producing. So uh, as I say, he wanted a, a clear cut formation. He didn't want problems in seminaries or things of that sort. So anyway, I, that's not a, a terribly clear-cut answer, Noel, but uh, I, I wouldn't want to draw as straight a line as Pope Benedict did in that letter, which I thought needed more nuance myself. In, in the back, please. Hi, I'm Shannon. Shannon um, I'm an yeah. undergraduate studying history and American studies, so I've actually had both Professor, oh, Professor um, Cummings and Father Bell as professors, which has been awesome. Um, so we talked a lot about, or the basis of this panel is that differentiation between American and priest, yeah. and thinking in more modern concepts of like intersectionality. So me as a woman, me as a mixed race woman, me as a Christian, those for me are all intersectional identities. You know, I'm weighing them all in lived experience. So what is different about Catholicism, and so American and priest? Why, is there a way to think of that as an intersectional identity? Can we balance I, that? I don't see Catholicism as an intersectional identity, perhaps in the way you do, Shannon, but I'll, uh, Kathy might have a, a better and more helpful way to think about it, because you see, I see Catholicism 
as this fundamental call and vocation. And you're living out a way of life because we acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that guides all we do, all those other identities, the fact that I'm an Australian, the fact that you're an American, et cetera, et cetera. They're important in their own ways and in their own place, but they don't change what is the fundamental story we're living in. So I see sort of Catholicism subsumes uh, those. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, we haven't got to be concerned about the place of different groups in the Catholic Church, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of who you are as daughter of God and as a member of the church, that to me is your fundamental call that then helps you organize how you live out these various other you know, callings and so on that you may have. Anyone else want to respond to that? Well, I think Father Bill should have the last word on the panel, but I'll, I'll just say to Shannon that I would agree with Father Bill that, that religious, religion is not only an identity, uh, but it is also an identity that intersects with other things that you say. And I know that's one of the things I've tried to do in my studies of women's history is to show that religious belief shaped the way women responded to, uh, to things like the suffrage movement, which was very Protestant. So Catholic women were against suffrage. Most Catholic women were anti-suffrage. But it wasn't because they didn't want a voice. It wasn't because they didn't see themselves as American. It was because they felt sidelined by the suffrage movement. So I would agree that it's not only uh, Catholicism is so much more than that, but it does affect how you interact with other groups uh, in which of, of different sexes and ethnicities and races. So that's all I'll say. But I do think Father Bill should have the last word. So, Father Bill, I have a question for you. If, if uh, one wants to visit um, Father Ted's grave, where, where do we find it? Yes, of course, Father Ted is buried in the Holy Cross Cemetery, which if you take the road that begins at the grotto and goes up between St. Joseph and St. Mary's Lake, and you take the turn to go to St. Mary's, uh, there you have the Holy Cross Cemetery. We are buried in the order in which we die. And uh, by some, uh, perhaps, God's sense of humor at work, Father Hesburg and Father Birchall died one after the other, and they're buried together there. Uh, Father Birchall, of course, suffered dementia in his later years. And uh, I wish I had a photo. Occasionally, Father Ted would push his, this is before Father Ted really deteriorated himself physically, would occasionally push Birchall in his uh, wheelchair. I'd like to have a photo of that, and I'd like to have a photo of Father Ted inviting Richard Nixon to go into the confessional at Sacred Heart <laughs> Church. That's my last word, thank you. Let me close just with a few uh, announcements and one other thank you. As I mentioned, uh, the event tonight was co-sponsored uh, co by the Notre Dame 
uh, St. Joseph County uh, Alumni Association, and Mark Rolf has uh, helped me with that. So thank you very much, Mark. Um, very much appreciate it. Um, Kathy Cummings, as you know, has a new book, and one of our first events in the fall is going to be a book panel uh, on her new book, A Saint of Our Own. It's going to be in September, and uh, George Weigel and Bob Woodward will be joining us for a panel on that book, so uh, that to come in the fall. A week from tonight, again, we have Nadine Strassen, former head of the ACLU, speaking on hate speech. It should be quite an interesting event. And uh, finally, uh, we do have copies of um, uh, Father uh, Bill's uh, biography for sale, and I'm sure uh, Father Bill uh, would happily sign them as well. Uh, please join me again in thanking the wonderful panel. <laughs>